that risotto won't cook itself. University Radio Nottingham, that's a good station as well, URN. Let them do a go well to finish, please. Can you stop editing the go well, please, at the end of their show? Cheers. Go well. Keep it URN. Keep it URN. URN. This. This. Is URN. Hello and welcome to Sticky Wicket, the only cricket podcast to have their Ashes review two weeks late to keep the suspense building. Uh, I'm Toby. Joined, as always, by Dom. Dom, how are you, mate? I'm good. I'm a bit bored of rain. It's sort of ruined the cricket playing summer. I think the Ashes, oh, I was just about to say, got away with it. Then I realised, no, we should have won it because of the rain. Very disappointed <laughs> with that. But yeah, it's just not been a very good summer. It's not been very good. Toby, how are you? You're on holiday, aren't you? I am. I am. I'm in sunny Spain right now. It's a bit, bit too hot, uh, <laughs> but I've managed to sit inside in an air-conditioned room for this podcast. So hopefully no interruptions. Do you think um, we're in a cricket podcast recording in Spain right now? Oh, I don't know, actually. Probably right now, I'd assume so, unless maybe there's a tail-enders tour to Spain, but I can't really see that happening. I don't think there's many other Spanish cricket podcasts, but maybe there is and we're wrong. Who knows? Uh, also joined by Will. Will, how are you, mate? Not too bad. It's a bit less rainy in, in, in Birmingham, but I've sadly not partaken in any cricket so far this summer. Maybe, maybe I'm in the right place, but just... I've not managed to get down. Yeah, no, it's been tough. Talking a little about before, too much rain, unfortunately. August has been weirdly wet. Hundreds have been affected a little bit by it, um, and obviously our games as well. However, we're not here to talk about the hundred. We're here to talk about the Ashes, as I mentioned in the preview. A little bit late with our series review. Um, we thought we'd try and leave it a little bit longer, have a bit of time. We we've all been thinking about it, obviously for the last two weeks, and and now I think it's a perfect time to have. Debrief. Um, but yeah, let's jump right in with the first men's test match at Edgbaston. Uh, Aussies won by two wickets, um, un- unfortunately. Obviously, very tight right till the end. But England scored 393 for eight inside the first day. Managed to declare with a few overs left in the day. Uh, in hindsight, obviously, there's a bit of questions about that debate, uh, about that um, declaration, sorry, um, as to whether it was right. And could it have maybe been sort of, England could have kept going with Root and Robinson at the crease. Dom, do you think that that it was, first of all, do you think it was the right decision? And also, there's then a lot of talk about that declaration later on, maybe not coming out Old Trafford when it should have done, and possibly in other test matches as well. Do you think it really did affect Stokes as well as, do you think it was a good decision? I think it was the right call on the day. We've got to remember Stokes does drop one, and the odds were against Australia. If you go from a purely odds analysis place, England should have won that final, uh, that first test match. It was just very unfortunate that they didn't get it over the line. And sometimes that happens. And it went down to the very last. We were playing at seven o'clock on the final day. It couldn't have left any later. I do think it was the right call. And it was just unfortunate England's bowlers didn't quite get it over the line. I think you've also got to look at Bairstow in that. I think there was another drop catch in there, one or two in that final day. So they created the chances. They just didn't take them. I think that's more down to the fact they didn't have a good enough preparation period. There's all this talk about golf. I'm not so sure them putting on the 17th hole was the real problem. It's the fact they hadn't had a major test match since March, was it? I think if you look at how the Australians were, they were so up for it. They just played the world's number two team and looked so sharp. I think if England had played someone like New Zealand, like we traditionally do before the Australians, I think we would have won that test match. I just don't think the sharpness was right. I think the declaration, though, was the right call. And yeah, it did leave a sort of mark. And I remember you saying on that first podcast after that's going to leave a mark and there's going to be a situation where England can't get it over the line due to a declaration fail but in then in fairness there was so much rain 
at Old Trafford that I don't think a result could have really been uh, achieved by either team. So the declarations are moments where they'll look back and question it, but I don't think the declarations themselves were the problem. No, yeah, I, I do agree with that as well. And you mentioned there the, the lack of sort of preparation. England obviously played Ireland in, in a one-off test match at Lords, won fairly comfortably. Do you think that it sort of happened 2019 as well, England played Ireland, got off to a slow start, having beat them fairly comfortably, albeit with a Jack Leach 92 helping them all the way. Do you think that England maybe need to start taking the preparations a bit more seriously rather than just giving sort of their local friends, Ireland, a sort of a friendly test match where we're going to play sort of an almost full-strength team, but we're not going to take it really seriously and it's not as great a preparation as what Australia had and often do have? Well, Ireland didn't even take it seriously themselves. They, again, were focusing on getting through to the World Cup and the T20 World Cup, and that caused shockwaves. But I do see your point. As much as we do need to encourage other nations to play cricket, and I do massively love when Ireland come play test cricket here, it's a complete change to the test circle, which feels so repetitive at times. But I do think we missed out here, and only having the one test match didn't help. In fairness, I'm going to add another sort of caveat here. Who else could we have played? India, we're not going to want to play a full series against India. New Zealand, maybe. South Africa, maybe. But then there again, they're quite big summer events. They're the sort of headline test summer. We wouldn't have wanted to play someone like Pakistan or Bangladesh or even the West Indies. They were very limited in their choices and there's no one there. That's the problem with test cricket right now. There's not a lot of depth. There's no that B side that we England could train against, if that makes sense. There's a lot of C sides and a lot of D level sides. And then there's the S A star side like India, England, and Australia. So it's sort of a result of that mm. to bring it closer to home. Yeah. I mean, a possible option maybe could have been internal matches. I always think that when England play them, you you really get to see sort of some players you maybe wouldn't really think about come out and show their quality and get, get a chance. Um, who maybe wouldn't have been given an option. Plus, England's sort of second string test side is a very strong team albeit we have a lot of injuries right now maybe that could have been an option well what what do you think in, in all of this do you think Ireland is the right option maybe a two, two match series or or an internal or, or or would you not even bother with this and just get them playing county championship I think it's difficult because the <clears throat> the issue with trying to get a side that's better than Ireland but on a similar level to Australia is that if you did get a New Zealand or a South Africa come and play one match are they going to be really okay with being what would quite obviously be a, a warm-up game for the Ashes and then also on the other side of that a lot of people have pointed to the World Test Championship and said was that like a one game too far in a summer for Australia was that why it was it was so close at the end um I think the internal matches like you said Toby are a shout I thought it was because of the World Test Championship Australia didn't have their usual uh match against the county championship side and I think that's always a good uh, a good way even even I think I can't remember it's 2019 or one of the other test summers but I remember there being a I can't remember if it was an international side or not but there was a sort of a best of county championship side um, against I, I want to say it was maybe India I can't remember but I, I remember Will Rhodes playing and something like that would be a good way to have a comparative comparatively sized and qualified team uh, as a warm up but then equally you don't want people playing too much cricket and with the injury concerns we had coming in whether it was, you know, I think, did we rest Anderson on, in for the Ireland game or was it broad? I can't remember. Who did Josh Sun come in for? Uh, Anderson, um, Anderson and Robertson both didn't play. They were both sort of had slight niggles. Yeah. So then it becomes a point of how much is it 
really want. I think with that, with the edge Baston test, I remember being there on the fifth day and as sort of Cummins and Lyons slowly started to knock the runs off, it was just the the bowling lineup was pretty innocuous, really. You have Robinson coming in from one end and just not offering anything really on line or length. The ball wasn't doing much. And I think when we get to the third and fourth tests, what you really began to notice was England were missing the firepower of Mark Wood and um, the consistency of Chris Wokes. I think if we'd had those at Edgebaston, then we probably would have won. It would have been really interesting to see, I think, Chris Wokes playing in these sort of first couple. He'd obviously been left out of the England sort of team very comfortably, no one really mentioning him. But he's a very similar bowler to Jimmy Anderson, so maybe it might not have been that much of a point of difference. But Mark Wood, I think, would have been very key. Even Josh Tung at Lords, you could tell that that extra sort of five miles an hour he had compared to the other teamers. And Wood has another five mile an hour on him. Definitely rushed the batters. So maybe it would have been interesting to see. And, and they could have maybe started a bit bit quicker as well and had more to play for than than maybe some of the sort of more stalwarts and the players who are more consistently selected with Robinson, Anderson, Broad, who don't necessarily have to fight for their places as much. Um, but it looked like the Aussies were going to sail past the English score in that first inning, or the Aussies' second innings, Aussies' first innings, um, before they lost 580. England then, with a bit of a lead, didn't really manage to capitalise, only mustered a below par 273, with no one converting any starts, even though every player except Zach Brawley made it to double figures. There was a bit of talk here, and I think this was a bigger problem than the declaration of England not really capitalising and sort of focusing too much on going hard and being aggressive and therefore losing cheap wickets and, and making silly mistakes when they really didn't need to. Dom, do you think this was maybe a bigger impact in the loss? Or or do you think that sometimes you're just going to be skittled and actually England sort of playing these shots managed to get them to a much better score than maybe they would have if they'd tried to dig in as they had done in the past, 2019 being a key example? I don't think they'd ever gone for the draw uh, with digging in. But I think we have to remember Nathan Lyon was superb. That pitch was crying out for a spinner. And Moen Ali in his first test match back wasn't good. For, for really honest, it wasn't his best test. Nathan Lyon was superb in England. I don't think have played a really, really good, almost, I'd almost say greatest of all time, but then there's, of course, Warney uh, for Australia. One of the best modern pl- uh, spinners for Australia. And he's, of course, going to be very difficult to play big shots against. It doesn't matter what the pitch is like. He's a very good, experienced veteran, and he's going to be aware of how to get players who are going to try and play big shots. I think we're a little naive by trying to do that to Nathan Lyon. And I can't remember his figures, but they were very good. And I just think, England were outclassed in that sense I think they didn't seem to take the sort of moment correctly they were trying to play big shots against a far far more experienced bowling lineup than they have previously played basketball against I think that probably was the biggest downfall but also let's not forget Ollie Robinson since he's gone out the side England's bowling's improved and I don't think Ollie Robinson bowled at all well in the first two test matches as we were just talking about England's bowlers I just I don't think Robinson will be safe and I don't think we'll see him in an England shirt next summer oh that's a big call right there we'll have to clip that one up in the remember it for, for this time next year to see maybe how we might have done um as mentioned then earlier as well the Aussies chased chased down England's England's total with Pat Cummins Captain Pat finishing it off uh with what almost could have been maybe a bit of a tighter game with a couple missed chances in that final final innings however Australia go one nil up then on to Trembridge where the women managed to to play their first test match in, well, against the Aussies for a good few years in, in their sort of multi-format series where they play one test, three ODIs, three T20s. Uh, myself was there alongside a few other sticky wicketers. Uh, and the Aussies managed to win by 89 runs. Very competitive match. And what was could have been maybe a bit closer had it not been for a few, few mistakes, which we'll get on to. 
Uh, the Aussies uh, put on an imposing 473, led by Elise Perry and Annabelle Sutherland, uh, and an Eccleston Pfeiffer as well. Perry is now the leading run scorer and wicket taker in women's Ashes history, uh, which I think is unbelievable to be both that good at, at both skills. Will, how how good is Elise Perry? And she's obviously been been in the Australia team for for a good while now, um, but but both with bat and ball, she is pretty much untouchable, especially in test. Yeah, I mean, really impressive. And then going, the thing I find most impressive with the Australian side is the multi-format talent so at least Perry's gone straight from the Ashes into the 100 as of a lot of the Australian players and yeah I mean also when it, on Elise Perry the most annoying thing about Elise Perry is that she also has a goal for Australia in uh, a World Cup quarterfinal as well I'm pretty sure which to be that good at football and cricket is oh, just cool. unfair on a number of levels um, but but yeah I, I think as well the, her longevity as well a, a couple of years back I can't remember if it was the last Ashes or not there was chat about, um, about her place in the side but just to have that level of longevity is just Remarkable. No, it, it really is. She has been so good for so long, and it explains why she's now been so dominant in the Ashes for what over a decade, I think it is. Uh, England then managed to fight back into the game, led by Tammy Beaumont's unbelievable 200. This was Jemima's magic moment. Uh, it's the first double 100 in a women's cricket ever, the second woman to have hundreds in all international formats, and I think the fourth English player, both men's and women's, to have hundreds in all international formats. Uh, and I mean, it's very impressive in my opinion as well, since she seems to be sliding out of favour just a few months ago and there were a few question marks over her um, and her position in that England side. But Dom, how good was she and, and how impressive was this not with, especially with wickets sort of tumbling around her um, throughout day three? It was incredible. It was, simply was incredible. Any double century at any level is incredible, but to do it on the highest stage in a format that is not often played, unfortunately for the women, showed a level of maturity with the bat a level of ingenuity mentality durability that is so hard to find in, in any batter it was just superb and it's the first double century for an english woman since 1935 so pre-war and i think pre-neville chamberlain so let, let's put that in perspective okay that for a history student that's big and it was just superb it's what england needed and she delivered you can't ask more from tammy Beaumont in that test no i mean there isn't really much more Maybe if she maybe got 280, then England might have won, but we can't really ask that from her. That'd be too much. Um, the Aussies then got off to an absolute flyer with 90 not out, sorry, 90 for none even, at close of day three. Um, the bowlers missed their line and length, seamers in particular, and it took a bit too long for Eccleston and Heather Knight to, to eventually come on. Actually, Heather Knight looked very dangerous for the two overs she bowled at the end of the day. Uh, and better bowling on day four stemmed the flow of runs and it allowed the Aussies to set only 268 to win, which is a fairly attainable score, it felt like. Um, another five for Freckleston, that's two in both innings. Uh, very impressive. But also Lauren Filer took two wickets in both innings as well. Exciting 22-year-olds, um, bowling very good speed. She's hit almost 80 mile an hour in the hundreds. Um, well, she seems to have leapfrogged Izzy Wong, and a number of other sort of young England seamers into this test side. Um, I mean, it wasn't it was last summer that um, Davidson Richards scored a hundred and took a good few wickets against South Africa. Where do you think she sort of came from? Because I know she's working with John Lewis, England's coach, and sort of working putting on a bit of pace. But she was sort of plucked out of obscurity and, and really showed some some brilliant skills with the ball. It's probably another case of the last couple of years. The amount of competition in that England women's side, particularly with the ball is just second to none. And to be able to come through a side 
that at the uh, uh, being around the likes of Lauren Bell, Izzy Wong, we talk about, and still managing to pick them to the to, to, to these spots. Really, I, I think especially Izzy Wong, because I remember the first year of the hundred, you felt like she was really the kind of incumbent bowler for England. She was she's handy with the bat as well, and and yeah, it says a lot about Lauren Fowler that she's managed to come through and sort of pick Izzy Wong out of the equation. I mean, it wasn't it, to, to for Izzy Wong to feature so minimally in that Ashes side says how good of a job she's done. No, definitely, definitely. And I mean, England then unfortunately collapsed to 178. Danny Watt couldn't quite take England to victory. Um, however, they did allow Ash Gardner the second best figures in women's test history, taking eight for 66. Um, I mean, it was a very disappointing result. Me and Will were both there on the final day. Didn't quite have the confidence, I don't think, either of us in, in England sort of managing to take, take victory. I think they were five down at the start of the day. Um, but Dom, do you think they were outplayed or was it a lack of performance really from, from this England side that gave the Aussies victory? A little bit of outplayed, but also we have to remember, similar to the men's team, they haven't had a test match in a long time. And they I think they had some inter-squad games, but they just didn't seem overall particularly ready. And they really grew into the series. And I think the Australians were pumped they were ready for this test series they're ready for the rest of the series i think they just wore out whereas england grew into this series and again if it wasn't for the rain england would be ashes men's and women's champions and it feels so unfortunate that the rain has come into it but england weren't at the races Bar tammy beaumont if you got rid of tammy beaumont just say she edges off early england would have been absolutely destroyed in that test match and i think it sort of hides the problems england's test women have at the moment they're not getting enough games they're only having one test a summer and I think that's being bumped up but that needs to keep happening they need to have a solid flow of, I think they're going to get a counter championship style uh, tournament coming soon or reinstating it but they just need more time playing Red Bull cricket so look at players like Danny Wyatt who hadn't had a test debut their whole career until now 13 years whatever it was it just doesn't seem right there just doesn't seem to be that connective thinking that's working so well for the men's team mm. yeah I couldn't agree more there were I mean, proof within all of that as well. There are about 25,000 fans that came across the five days, which is proving a huge amount of interest in women's test cricket in England. Um, and I mean, that's more fans than many men's test matches would receive and, and definitely more than 90% of county championships matches, I, I'd have thought as well. Well, do you think that, that this summer really has proved that the women deserve more test matches than they have? And and do you think that they will be able to and or, or as likely they will? Absolutely. And, and like Dom says with that, Tammy Beaumont double century it kind of it covers up the weaknesses and that inexperience but it also shows like the Sophie Eccleston five for the capabilities that the women's team have and where they and given the resources how great they could be but it's all about experience all about playing if you think about the men they play what most likely around five tests in the winter at least five tests in the summer um and in the women's game to have uh, um, you know sometimes one test a year I mean no wonder it's they've not got the skill set that you need for test cricket so hopefully if anything that 25,000 over five days if 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 that shows anything that shows that they deserve a test and hopefully at Lords as well I mean we all know my grievances about Lords as a place but it'd be nice for it'd be nice for the women to get that run out that they deserve really mm. I think that's that's definitely the future they obviously had um they've had a finally had a few ODIs and, and T20s the last couple of years because I think between 2017 and and last summer, I don't think they played any women's matches or international matches at, at Lords, which seems not since the World Cup final. Exactly, yeah, 2017, and and that just sort of surprised me on its own. But unfortunately, this did mean Australia took a four 0 lead, um, which I thought would be fairly unassailable. Did you guys think that that England would struggle to come back from from this, particularly with the waiting 
of the multi-format series, they were four 0 down. It meant they could only lose two more matches. They couldn't lose two matches. Only one, one more if they really wanted to retain. Uh, sorry, regain the Ashes. Dom, did you think England had a chance after this loss? I thought they were still in it. They're a very, very good white ball team. And obviously, Australia had their injuries. And then going straight to Edgbaston, which was sold out, you just thought, well, the momentum can quickly change here. And surprisingly, Edgbaston didn't change the momentum. I think it got more people into watching the women's ashes. I really do think that BBC Two time helped the women's ashes grow in publicity. And from then on, that sort of stumble they have at Edgbaston, then they get back into it. But by the time they've lost to Edgbaston, it is so difficult. That was when I truly lost hope after that disappointing end to that game where they just lose their heads. They don't use the right spinner at the right moment. That's when I was like, game's done. And then they completely proved me wrong. But I do think the weighting of points in the multi-format series is very beneficial to test regular test playing nations. And I, I love that they're valuing test cricket. But is it fair for the rest of the series to be so weighted? I'm not too sure. Because Australia only win two more games for the rest of this, don't they? Or one more and get away with it. Yeah. And somehow, despite England winning more matches, Australia won, Australia go back home with the urn, which doesn't seem right at all. No, definitely. We'll get on to that a little bit more later as well. Um, however, between that test match, Lords then kicked off the men's second test match. Australia won by 43 runs in what was a, a very good game, very dull game at points as well, though. The Aussies amassed 416 uh, with a shaky Warner 66, head runnable 77, and a Smith ton. However, I think the biggest talking point from the English side was Josh Tung, who was brought in um, in to, to try and sort of freshen up this England attack for Mo and Ali. A lot more pace, showed immediate promise, and, and really the pace that England had been missing. He was then unlucky to miss out on the later test matches, I thought. Will, do you think he maybe should have played at some point and should have played a more major part in the rest of the series? Or do you think that this was his one-off thing and then once Mark Wood's back, you only need that one sort of quick bowler? It's tough because he looked so good at, at Lords and getting a lot out of another pretty dull pitch, really, that um, he, he managed to get something out of, really, that no one else really did. But it's it's kind of a selector's nightmare having two fast bowlers that good and on English pitches when you know you need, you see him in swing bowlers. It's difficult to... Like, there's no way that... Um, McCullum and Stokes were ever going to pick a side that had both Tongue and Wood in it. And you just felt that Wood had the extra bit of Ashes experience that meant that he, when he was fit, fully fit, he was going to walk into that side. But it's definitely gives it's it's definitely good to know that Josh Tongue has that ability for next year and for the next home ashes in 2027. He's only he's, he's quite young compared to a lot of our pace attack. Even Chris Wokes and Mark Wood both in their early 30s, I'm pretty sure. Um so it's good to it, it's just a sign that and it's pretty spectacular, really, that we seem to manage to keep on bringing up bowlers from the county championship, and in a to- in a way totally dissimilar to the to our to our batsmen. That seems to be a much easier, especially on English pitches, I guess, but transition to make. And I guess Josh Tongue is another example of that. No, definitely. I think considering he barely played in the county championship, England sort of picked him on on a lot of potential and what they saw when he was younger, and in a few Lions matches that he did play, uh, which I think was very impressive from them in the, in the selection committee. Dom, do you think he could be very key in India to try and rotate with Wood and having that that sort of different option that England might need, that extra bit of pace at times in the sort of subcontinent? Yeah, probably. I think especially with Brody coming to his end and I think Jimmy won't play all five. Or how many test matches is it in India? Five? Yeah, five. 
yeah, he can't play on those. We've we've discussed this a lot on sticky wickets. Go through the back catalogue. We don't trust Indian surfaces, especially when they go one nil down. I don't think Jimmy should be bowling on those sorts of awful pitches. I think the problem with Tung, I thought, what Wood really had over him was with the bat. Mark Wood was so useful at Headingley with the runs he scored, whereas Tung just looked like similar to me or you going out to bat, Toby. He did not have any confidence. And I think one of the main reasons we win at Headingley is because the tail wags. And I know this sounds very stupid, but we've got to think about with Basball, everyone needs to be able to hold a bat because it can go wrong. And we do need someone to just put on that extra 20 or 30 runs, which became so valuable at Headingley. I just don't, I think Tung needs to work on that. And I think he's a fantastic bowler and there's lots to come from him. But for him to cement his place, he needs to drastically improve his batting as well. Mm. I think that's a little harsh. He seemed in that fourth innings to put on a few runs. I think got 19 or 18 and looked okay. But I, I, I do know what you mean. And and Wokes and Wood were very key in lengthening that line um, when they came in the following test. Uh, England then collapsed to for, for 325, 50 for six at one point. Um, or sorry, 50 runs. They lost 50 runs for six wickets. Um, it seemed to be a bit of a pattern in the first two test matches. However, after Lords seen a little bit less less happening, do you think that that's just occasionally it's going to happen, occasionally it won't, and it will all click or it might not click, Dom? Or do you think that that maybe something something changed and and Stokes actually spoke to the dressing room and said, look, we need to be a bit smarter in the way this happens? Well, what Monty said on the Lords test was it sort of acted as a sort of kick up the arse, for want of a better phrase. This is an Ashes summer. This is an Ashes series. Those lads over there, the Australians, we don't like them. We've got to get we need to get the fight back into us. They were so placid at times and all this talk of Baz Ball was almost weighing down on this England team. They really just looked a completely fresh team and I think taking Robinson out, bringing someone in like Wokes who was very, I don't want to patronise him say he was happy to be there. I think he loves playing for England. I think he really brought back a sort of enjoyment and they then had their backs against the wall. They've got to win every test. It's then alive for them. I don't know whether it's anything to do with Baz Ball, whether it's the team mentality whether it was a Johnny Bairstow incident. They just woke up a little bit too late in that Lord's Test match. But by the time they drove up to Leeds, they were fully awake, fully ready for the task at hand. And if it wasn't for the weather, it would be sort of a changing doors moment where we go, ah, this is the moment England won the Ashes. And we can fuel any sort of conspiracy into it. But I just think they finally woke up that this meant a lot to everyone. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's very key. Alongside as well, the Johnny Bairstow stumping, which we have been over in, in a lot of detail. If you go back a few podcasts, you can hear all of our opinions about it, Monty's as well. Um, but do you think, Will, that that really flipped the switch in England? Or was it always inevitable that Basball would return and retaliate in the way that they did? I think it was kind of a moment for them to realise what Basball meant. I think they'd, in Edgebaston and at Laws, especially losing 50, uh, six wickets for 50 runs it was when it was like that short ball um sort of like mania where just like swinging at everything and then i think when you got to headingley i can't remember who was batting i want to say harry brook it was either at headingley or um at the oval but in the later tests it was just a realization that basball doesn't mean being able to smash everything it the bit the the batsman works out quite quickly after post laws at the, the it was far easier to, to duck under it Tyrell, Mitchell Stark and Pat Cummins and then it's going to it's going to work a lot easier 
it's gonna be a lot easier to bat when it's there. you're not swinging at every every short ball and hoping not to get caught in the deep. Um, but yeah, I think the Johnny Bairstow instant plays into it, and I think the contrast of personalities between Ollie Robinson and um, Chris Wokes is was was a really big thing. I think Ollie Robinson with his column and with kind of a constant sort of chat compared to Chris Wokes is just calm. Seemed seemed like a, a, a great kind of exchange, really. Um, and I think that that fueled fuel a lot of them because it, it went from England feeling quite pent up and angry to feeling a lot more, see, looking a lot more relaxed. Um, and like there was a lot less pressure on them, like Dom says. Mm, definitely, definitely. Yeah. And I think one thing maybe a few people sort of forgot or maybe didn't think about as well, Nathan Lyon got injured in this and was then out for the rest of the series, which was quite big. Todd Murphy came in for the third test, was dropped for the fourth test, which maybe felt a bit harsh, and then was back in for the final match of the series. So I guess maybe that can also have a bit of an effect. The England women then manage a victory over the Australians in their T20 series, uh, managed a 2-1 victory. Uh, they lost, unfortunately, the first match in the T20s uh, by four wickets with just one ball remaining at Edgebaston, uh, which meant they couldn't afford to lose another match if they wanted the Ashes. Uh, Dunkley scored 50 and Amy Jones 40 from 21 not out, um, carried England to a, a good opening score, but Beth Mooney's 61 red was really key opening the batting. Uh, England then won by three runs at the Oval, Danny Wyatt making 73 opening the batting and Spinners taking five wickets between them to defend 180. Uh, but Perry 50 not out, including two sixes off the last two balls, was in vain and started restarted the England's chances uh, of victory here in the Ashes. They then went to Lords, where England won by five wickets with four balls remaining with a little bit of DLS help there. Uh, the Aussie batters all shipped in to reach 155 with Bell, Lauren Bell only going at sixes. Alice Captain then carried with a 46 run runs at 200 strike rate. Unbelievable there in the T20s. This was a huge victory in the series for, for England. They Aussies are normally extremely dominant Dom in, in the white ball side of the game. Were you surprised when England, particularly when they went 1-0 down, that they managed to get themselves back into it and give them a chance at retaining or regaining the Ashes? I don't think I was surprised because obviously England are a very good T20 side, but when you heard the stats that Australia hadn't lost a T20 series since 2016, you then, I don't know, during the games, it never felt like we were playing a behemoth, a giant of world sport. They're one of the great sides in any sport, in any gender. They're unparalleled uh, at the moment. And But during the games, I never felt that feel of awe and we're playing against an amazing side here. It felt so even. And that's a real testament to the England women's setup right now. I'd get nervous and then the game would start and that would just all dissipate because England looked so, so positive throughout. And I think, obviously, it was very hard and they didn't quite get over the line as a Ashes win. But to get level is a superb achievement by the England women. Absolutely mm. one of the great achievements. Definitely. Don't mention there, Will, that England have really sort of started to, to look sort of more professional and, and the investment really seems to be coming through with a lot of youth um, youth players starting to make a difference to this England side. Players like Danny Gibson uh, came in. I think she hit the winning runs of four of her one ball at Lord's. Um, to take England to victory there. Do you think that the sort of investment is, has been just the key, sorry, the key has just been the investment that England have made in the women's game? Or do you think that maybe the Aussies who have been on top for so long are maybe getting a bit more 
um, relaxed and, and maybe aren't quite at the top of the game where they have been for so long? I think it would be unfair on the England team to put it down to an Australian, sort of a weekend Australian side, because although we talk about kind of more veteran players like Elise Perry, who have been around for a lot a lot longer, you st- I still remember when at the last Women's Ashes, you had people like Talia McGrath coming through who are now in really established T20 players, really formidable players to go up against. And I think it's more a case of, it's more a um, the success of this England side and it should be put down to their own successes. I mean, Alice Capsey, you mentioned, Toby, for all its faults, would Alice Capsey be the player she is today without the the hundreds? Um, a couple of years back when she came through, to, to see that that innings there, like you talk about, four fours, two sixes, going to hitting at 200. England's prowess in the short format has a lot to do with how much money investment's been put in. And I think getting those crowds in to watch the women's game, it will, I, I think... Again, the double headers that the hundreds put on have have something to do with that. Um, so I think no, I think a lot can be said for 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 the investment that's been put in, and I, I don't think that how close England took this series should be put down to um, Australian failures. And I think also like Dom says about not really feeling like you were playing this T Twenty behemoth. I think as well the fact that it was a multi format series, and that even though England. Had, even when they'd won the T20 series, it didn't feel like it had that same magnitude to it because you were still thinking, well, on points, um, we're still what would have been at that point, 6-4 or whatever, and we've got three ODIs to play, we've got to win all of the ODIs. So it didn't really, I don't think they really got the kind of the, the kind of respect and the moment to celebrate how much of an achievement that really was. Yeah, no, I, I, I would love to agree with you completely. However, you mentioned the 100 having faults there, and, and then I just stopped oh, listening. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, no, totally. I can't listen to fake news like this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> alongside this, however, England were playing in Headingley, uh, the men's test match, this is obviously. England won by three wickets, their first and first victory finally uh, on the table, taking it to 2-1. Uh, big changes for both teams, though. Woods, Wokes and Ali were uh, returning for England after long, long spells away for Wood and Wokes in particular. Uh, Mitch Marsh returned since 2019. Uh, Todd Murphy debuting in England, uh, having been really good in India over the winter. Um, Mitch Marsh in particular, instant return on the investment they've spent on him over the four years where he last he scored a century uh, after taking a fiver in his last match, test match, four years ago in England. Uh, that is Wood Pfeiffer as well, uh, which is fantastic. And I think it was your magic moment, Will. Uh, we'll get on to it in a second. But I mean, Marsh, first of all, wasn't in Australia's plans originally, um, was pretty much there as a backup and sort of just a squad member, basically. Um, but had a surprisingly good series considering he's not played since the last Ashes back in 2019. Definitely sort of an English specialist when you look at his records. I think all his hundreds have been against England. Um, so I don't really know what that says about either him or maybe England against him. Um, and he definitely plays in sort of basketball kind of way. Um, Dom, do you think this sort of showed some flaws in England and their bowling attack that the Mitch Marsh could just come in and sort of be really, really dangerous and aggressive? Or do you think it maybe just reinforced how good and dangerous basketball can be when it's working? I think we've also got to remember we took nine quick wickets on that day. It was the, He was the only person who offered a bit of resistance. I think England's bowling certainly moved up a level or two from the final uh, innings at Edgbaston and at the Oval for them. I think we need to remember that. Obviously, Mitch Marsh comes in, has a good innings. He shows that basketball being aggressive can work. 
But at the end of the day, Australia didn't win the test match. They didn't get enough runs. So we do need to temper temper the sort of celebration of Mitch Marsh with the fact that it wasn't quite enough. It was a very good innings. It was a superb innings. But England bowled very well for the rest of it. And that's what matters. If they just... Wasn't there a drop for Mitch Marsh at 30 as well? I think, I think it's another incident of England's fielding wasn't good enough. That, that's, that's the main thing I take from this. There's so many incidents, whether it be Bairstow, whether it be Crawley in the slips, whether it be Root, we can all sort of pinpoint drops on even Anderson, who's usually such a good fielder. There just wasn't that level of preparedness in the field. And that's what I think truly cost England. Not the declarations, not the not having games before, the drop catches and the missed runouts and the no balls, the sloppiness of England, even to the last test match, was so frustrating to watch. No, I definitely think there were a lot of sort of key moments where a game could easily have just been turned instantly just by, yeah, as you say, a taking catch or or a chance missed by the Australians, which were sort of much further and few between until those final three matches where they started to lose it a little bit. Um, Woods, as I sort of mentioned, came back in, showed class instantly. Seems to have added a few more skills um, as well um, and obviously has ridiculously high pace and showed it really, really well. Well, you mentioned this. This is your magic moment. How how good was Mark Woods and how good was this spell? Well, it's 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 funny with Headingley because I remember it was I just got into um I, I was in France with my mates. I remember getting a text from my dad saying, "Don't worry about your data. Get Sky Go up on your phone. You need to you need to watch what's happening." I remember having it out in this little like on the on the waterfront in this little town in the south of France, and just it felt like like you say, Toby, with those skills that have changed. I don't know if it's the pitch or whether it's something Mark Woods worked on. It didn't feel like just sheer pace. It felt like he was also managed to get movement out the ball as well. And I think that mixture bowling at 95 miles an hour is virtually unplayable. And, and, and again, when we like talk about bringing Mark Wood back in and Chris Wokes and then Mitch Marsh coming into the Australian side, it was really interesting that those were the three guys that really stood out at this test match because when you read about them, um, I think it was in Ollie Robinson's um, column that he said that like five minutes before bowling this like imperious um spell uh that mark wood was on the floor pretending to be a dog or something like that in the in the dressing room and chris wokes being someone who just loves to play his cricket never really oftentimes i think it's been treated with a little bit of disrespect in terms of being dropped and not necessarily um fairly and then mitch marsh as well who's, who I've, I've read quite a lot of articles that seem to just paint him as someone who is quite happy to just go on these tours and enjoy the, the life of being a touring cricketer um, it was interesting they did so well. And I think it was, it with with all of these guys, particularly Mark Wood, it seems to be a case of just, they've got to a point now, Mark Wood's come back from so many injuries. He seemed to really be enjoying being out there anytime he was out there, be that with the bat, with Chris Wokes um, and their cameo to win the test on the final day. It, it I think it was all kind of, it was a total mentality switch from England and just realising, right, I think as well, with Baswell being such a vibes-driven style of play and not results driven style of play it was thinking right we're 2-0 down we're going to go out there we just can play our best cricket just enjoy playing our best cricket and whatever happens happens and I think that's kind of set the tone for how England play for the rest of the series um, and that all started with Mark Wood steaming in and, and the Usman Khawaja wicket was probably the highlight for me taking out is um, the middle is often was just oh it was one of the most satisfying wickets that I've seen for a very long time no definitely I think considering how good a player of pace Khawaja is it was just too quick for him, too skillful for him. He had no chance realistically, and, and I don't think many batters would have been able to keep that one out. Um, England then, in their first innings, had a slightly mixed 
McSilling, Stokes scored a brilliant 80. Wood again, 20 from eight um, with the highlights. The Aussies then scored 224. Nothing really of note from their innings. Um, however, England, as we mentioned, got their first victory. Another fantastic chase um, with Brooks and Wokes coming in clutch this time. Uh, evidently, this really suits them, the chasing. Dom, how do you think they'll make this work in India with the test matches? Decaying pitches, as we know, are not very favourable down there. Possibly with a need for Stokes up the order, um, who might not be able to come in down and save England for these kind of things as well. I don't. I honestly don't know how they're going to have to. They're going to have to adapt. India is such a different proposition to anywhere they've been before with this wonderful baseball mentality. I'd say this: this Ashes has been very much the Ashes of the unexpected. Not only in the storylines created, but also who has shone and who has failed to shine. I think if you look at someone like Jimmy Anderson, who we all expected to be top wicket taker, he hasn't shone. Whereas someone like Crawley, Kawaja, Mark Wood, Chris Wokes, players who we all sort of would never have written the script for, they've absolutely been electric. And I think one thing I'll say about the chase, it's a team effort. And I think we got a little bit lucky with Brooks. Every shot was coming off for him. And he's a very sort of, He's very much a player who is feast or famine, in my opinion. He just needs to grow. And this was part of his evolution as a batsman. But that tour to India, I, I honestly can't tell you what they're going to do on those pitches because I don't know what state the pitches are going to be in. Are they going to be the first test that we played on down in India last time? Or is it going to be the last where it might as well have just been a cabbage patch? It's very difficult for them, but they're going to have to review a lot of pitches and review a lot of Indian four-day games to see what they're going to do. But it's far above my pay grade. Yeah, there was then a slight gap between the men's test matches to allow the England women to go front and centre with their ODI series. England managed to win 2-1. However, it meant the Aussies retained the Ashes with an eight-all draw on points. Bristol, Dom, you live there. This is your magic moment. England won by two wickets. Beth Mooney got 81 not out. Uh, as all the England bowlers managed to chip in before a mini collapse from 120 for two. Uh, maybe put England on the ropes a bit, but skipper Heather Knight managed 75 not out alongside Kate Cross to take England home. Don, why why was this your magic moment? And just describe the match for us and, and your love for it. I just think it was the quintessential ODI game. A score that's gettable in front of a packed house and it just being such a narrow margin of victory that two wickets the Kate Cross innings was superb. I know that sounds stupid, but it was just it just was everything you want from a tail ender coming into bat. It was just perfect. There was a bit of flash. There was a bit of confidence in it. There was a little bit of swagger from someone who probably should not have that swagger in that moment. It was just entertaining. And I think Bristol often gets sort of forgotten in the um, international scene. So to see a packed house for the women's game, I believe they had a test here, ooh, 2021, I want to say. It, it just shows that England's women's cricket is sustainable throughout the country. And I think sometimes when you look at women's sport, it can be very much big in London or Manchester and Birmingham, but it's how it does outside of those top three. But for Taunton and Bristol to both be sellouts and the rest of it to be absolute sellouts, the women's game was superb. And I think it was one of the few days of sun in Bristol. That's probably <laughs> helped my mood. But it was just such an amazing narrative. And Heather Knight is someone who has been a tremendous servant to England women and to England cricket in general, who's always been there, who's gone on every tour, who's, you know, been there when women's sport wasn't being funded, who's been there with the World Cup, who's been there to retain Ashes, who's been there when we've been battered in the Ashes. For her to get that sort of shining moment and it, to be Heather Knight, 
leading the charge as England level it up. For me, the narrative's there. The growth of the game is there. Bristol's in the sunshine. Cider's flowing. I'm not sure what there is not to love about this moment. And also, the Australians lose. So you, you can't add anything else. You just simply can't. Unfortunately, that magic moment wasn't enough for England to, to take victory in the Sashes. The Aussies then retained with a three-run victory at the Aegeus Bowl. Natsiva Brunt century couldn't quite take victory for England. However, they did manage to win the ODI series and draw the Ashes at Taunton just a couple of days later, winning by 69 runs. Uh, this was the first 100 by Natsiva Brunt in a winning cause against the Aussies, her fourth ODI 100 against them, which is very, very tough. I'm sure she would have been overjoyed when she managed to do that. And I think a very telling um, sort of picture and moment from from that match was that the England women were celebrating. They were loving it. They knew that they were the better team across the series. The Aussies looked almost a little bit sort of sad and a, and a bit sort of annoyed when they were literally lifting the trophy. Uh, it was their first ODI loss since 2013. Um, and it was just a bit of a weird moment, that, that sort of that feel. We'll get into it, get onto it a little bit later. Uh, with maybe a few other ideas for for changing the series. And I'm sure over the next sort of two and a half years until the next Women's Ashes, there might be a few ideas about changing changing the sort of format and the, and the points worth um, for each victory in, in the Women's Ashes, this multi-format series. Will, do you think that, that maybe this sort of multi-format series could be implemented a bit more in the men's game as well? Because I really like it. It sort of brings squads together. Obviously, there's maybe a little bit more sort of consistency in squads um, across the three formats in the women's side of the game. But particularly for sort of smaller nations who don't play as many test matches and don't seem to do, um, get as big crowds, sorry. Um, do you think that maybe it could be an option for so maybe the West Indies, say, or or Sri Lanka or teams who maybe get bigger crowds for for the sort of shorter form of the game? It's funny, though, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't even thought about it before you mentioned it, Toby, but... I think what now, now I'm thinking about it ahead. I mean, if we got three tests or two against the West Indies next year um, at home, is it three? I think maybe I can't remember. But in those kind of series, think... that it would be perfect because if you look at the uh, where the West Indies play in India at home, and in the test series they've been they've been trampled and they they never stand a chance. But then they go into the shorter format, and that's where they specialize. And it would add to those kind of series because we know. I mean, there's a really great. Uh, podcast not to not not to plug anywhere else but the caribbean cricket podcast that they tweeted at one point saying oh it'll be a bit of a it's always a bit of a um an exhibition match when the west indies come to england a lot of the time um but if you added that that format in it would keep give the those kind of series a fresh feel i think in really competitive test series like australia this year new zealand um india come to mind i i, I feel like it would kind of reduce it a little bit um, and I don't. I think in, in in a series like the West Indies, where it could make it more competitive, then yeah, I think it would be interesting to see. Um, but not in the more. I would. I. I don't think there'd be any argument for seeing it in, in a competitive test series like India or Australia. Yeah, um, yeah, I completely agree. And I, and I think hopefully, women's the women's side of the game will get to a stage where <clears throat> where there may be certain series have this. But I really would like to see sort of a women's ashes where it is just five test matches. And I think the game is growing in such a way and at such a great rate um, with more and more sort of younger um, girls across the country playing cricket that, that maybe in 20 years' time, that's a very viable option. Um, 
the men then headed to to rainy Manchester, um, where there was unfortunately a, a very rain affected draw. Uh, with a moral victory for England. And yes, I will continue to mention this every time we talk about Old Trafford. Um, knowing they had to win, Stokes sent the Aussies in, uh, who made over 300 with sort of multiple players all chipping in across the boards. Um, however, Wokes Pfeiffer, keeping England just about on top, he took, well, three wickets in five of the six innings uh, he played in a, in a series and was absolutely crucial to England. And one man of man of the series as well, with playing just over half the matches. How how crucial do you think he was for this England side to actually manage to get back into the series? Absolutely crucial. And I think, like you mentioned about taking three wickets across six innings in each of um, six innings. I think with, with Chris Wokes, he has he has like this low level of consistency. And what I mean by that is he he's so consistent, but in a way that. Although I talked about Mark Wood's um, speller heading me being my moment of the series, Chris Wokes managed to just slip under the radar a lot of the time. But the consistency he offered us in this game, and always when he comes on to ball to bowl, I always feel like he hits that back of the length so well that it always looks difficult for the Australians to to play him. And that's what that that's the reason why I think he was man of the series because he had that he has that impact, um, and then also with the bat as well. Um, but I, I, th- I think really had we been able to get out on that final day that that attack of Wokes and, and Woods had had Joe Wilson not got his sunglasses on um, maybe maybe it would have been a different result but um, yeah I think the the best thing for me to uh, from from the kind of Warwickshire standpoint to come out of this series has been the Chris Wokes Appreciation Club to, to, to have finally finally got his recognition maybe maybe that's the future maybe England need more Warwickshire players who knows who knows <laughs> oh absolutely yeah all of them full, full 11 Get Jake Lintot in for the uh, for the Indus series. Why not? <laughs> Could be an option. We always, he's not been picked up in the hundred though, so I mean that automatically brings him down on my sort of scale of player quality. Exactly. Um, if he's not playing the hundred, then then why should he be anywhere near any other kind of formats? Exactly, exactly. Um, England then piled on five hundred ninety-two, a massive, massive score. Zach Crawley's one hundred eighty-nine silenced the doubters whoever they may be, and Johnny Bairstow making his first contribution since he took the gloves up in that first match with 99 not out. Uh, this wasn't a great day for, for my confidence, in my own opinions, I would have to admit, uh, but definitely uh, and rightfully secured both their places for, for the India series. Um, in my opinion, though, Johnny Bairstow can't keep and, and shouldn't keep in India, which is such a, a tough place to keep in the subcontinent. Dom, do you think that he can take the gloves or, or will folks have to come in just for that extra bit of experience where where sort of key wickets and, and missed stumpings and catching opportunities could be a big problem really hurt England? Yep. So hopefully we'll be doing this in the later part of the podcast. Depends on timing because someone's cooking a risotto. I have got uh, Ben Folks in as my wicketkeeper uh, for, for the um, tour. I just think his ability to bat on turning pitches is often underrated. He's got a lot of runs in Sri Lanka. I remember that very clearly and just thinking, oh, we've got something here. And he is sort of wheeled out as a tour keeper now, which is very harsh on him. But I think Johnny Besto needs to lose the gloves. He was almost forced to play wicket keeper. He had to play keeper so he could keep his place in the side. And for possibly his last home ashes, it's quite hard to turn that down. And I think there's a lot of media scrutiny on him. 
But obviously coming back from that injury, it, it was going to be tough. And the more pressure that built up on him, the harder his glove seemed to be until that final amazing catch off Moe and Ali. It just never seemed right. And I think when we go to a place where Wicket's going to be almost like gold dust, we've got to put Ben Folks in. And I think I'm going to take Harry Brooks out and put Johnny Bairstow in. I just like Bairstow's mentality. He's been in the team a bit longer. But let's all not kid ourselves. These are going to be long, very hard test matches. So there'll probably be some interchanging. And we're just talking about the first test. One thing I will say, though, as someone who did back Crawley, someone who did back Bairstow, it was a fantastic day for my confidence. <laughs> <laughs> very, I think... You can be rightfully smug about that one, Tom. I'll, I'll allow it. And it, um, only cost, they, it only cost the team. It's only it's fine. It's, for those two to have a good day, it only cost the Ashes, and I'm I'm fine with that. It's, it's worth it. It was worth it. Uh, rain unfortunately ended England's hopes of victory, not only in this match but also the whole series, and therefore regaining the Ashes was lost. Um, there was a possibility in talk about declaration. Will do you think that maybe Stokes? So obviously having lost that edge-passing test and maybe thinking about it, should have declared at some point? Or do you think that they thought, actually, we just want to bat long, bat big, and just try and bat once? I, I don't know. I, I think, again, it's the same with the declaration at edge-passing. At the time, it made sense to me because I felt like waiting that little bit longer, getting those extra runs. A lot of people were like, oh, it's it's best those chances to get his 100 and, and whatnot but I didn't really see it like that I think when you look at the way the game was left on day four when uh, when the rain started again at T the Aussies were were only about what was it 60 70 runs short I can't remember but it, if we hadn't had those extra Bairstow runs then as soon as they passed over um, as soon as they would have gone into bringing England into bat again they would have just put the bat down it would have been total nullified, no sort of play at all. So I, I, I don't know. I think it made sense at the time and I think we needed those extra runs. So um, no, I don't think a declaration would have really changed the result. Then on to the Oval. England won by 49 runs. The big one, they managed to stop the Aussies from winning the Ashes in England. Uh, they clattered their way to 283 with contributions all round, including a little bit of a tail wag. Dom, is this England's biggest success? Sort of under Root, they own, they only seem to sort of score. That's right. Under Root, he was the only one, the captain, that actually scored runs. Now everyone is sort of seems able to. And do you think it's a little bit to do with confidence? Where do you think sort of all of these runs that that weren't there with Root have sort of come from? I think there's been an improvement in the pitches for the batsmen, and we've seen that affect our bowlers a little bit. But I do think you're very right there. The Stokes and McCullum, I'm not going to blame Root. I do think the the management wasn't right for the batsmen. It was so much pressure. And Jimmy Anderson's talked about on tailenders, how they're even being influenced by the media. This team, this bubble, whatever you want to call it, this leadership group, as the Australians love to say, are so fantastic together. They're a team. And that's allowed players like Crawley, who we've all criticised, we've all gone, I'm not sure he should be in the team, to just, stay there it's not the 90s anymore we're not going to chop and change and that's allowed him to grow as a test cricketer and i know toby you'd prefer if he grew in the in the county championship but the belief in everyone allows players to grow and that's why i've got a slightly i've gone for a little bit of a controversial one for my india tour pick uh we'll sort of cue that up but i do think the mentality is allowing batsmen to be confident in them and to have confidence in themselves to believe in themselves and that's paying off by the bucket load no, definitely. 
Australia did have the lead at the halfway mark due to Cummins, 36, Murphy, 34, Glass in their way for almost 300. And it felt a little bit reminiscent, as we sort of talked about, that past England side struggling to take wickets of the tail. Will, does this sort of show the problems that, that England have without sort of a spinner, without Moan Alley, and with Wood being quite fragile and not bowling? Yeah, no, it does. And it's 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 difficult, especially at home, I think, because we... Um because we didn't have really Anderson coming off in the same way as well as that we might have expected. Um, we needed, we needed slightly more, more depth, but then you look at that final day we had, um, well, not the final day, but we had, Oh, you know, the final day we had, we, we had what Wokes bowling and you always felt that there was something there with Wokes Brody coming in on, on that final day as well. I think that when we're, that there's always going to be bowling depth for England. And I think the best thing to come out of this series is particularly both Manchester um, and the series as a whole was, was the I think for, for for the first time in a long time, probably more than a decade, um, we finally have an opening pair that I think is relatively immovable, particularly at home. And I think that that's the best thing that's come out of this series. Mm. England then set three hundred eighty four to win for the Aussies, which would have almost been sort of considered an impossible chase before last summer where pretty much it happens consistently. Uh, England's sort of massive score consi- consisted of a century opening stand, the first in a long while, and, and Duckett and Crawley really sort of solidified themselves um, in this Ashes series, Dom. Do you think that they're going to be sort of set for it for life almost a little bit as England's only partnership, or in two tests, two bad tests against India, will the questions come up immediately again? I, I think it would be very harsh if anyone questioned them after how they've done. And we all know how difficult it's been. It's been a 10-year-long search, it feels like, for anyone to to replace Andrew Strauss. Then we lost and, uh, Sir Alistair Cook. And then we're like, oh, God, what do we do now? And these two have come in. They've, been, they've come under a little bit of pressure. They've batted well individually. They've batted well as a partnership. They, I now believe they have the highest batting average of an English opening partnership since the 50s. They're really good. And that's they're not flashy in the sort of they're not big name players. Crawley and Duck aren't going to immediately sell tickets, but they're just good. They work together, and as long as McCullum's at the helm, they're going to have to commit a crime or get injured to not be in the next game or go through almost a year long drought. Even then, I I still think McCullum would just constantly back them. Yeah, I think even if there are questions, I think you're right there that they were very unlikely to not play all of the India series and probably be England's pair for, for the opening test match next summer. Um, we then managed to bowl Australia out under the required run rate, obviously, under the required runs, uh, with a key spell by Wokes and Ali, who took four and four overs between them before Broad managed to mop up the final two left-handers to claim victory. Um, I mean, firstly, retirement Stuart Broads, who had a magnificent test match, hit a six off his last ball in test match batting uh, and managed to take a wicket off his last ball test match bowling, which I think is, let, yeah, on its own, a brilliant stat. And I'm sure we'll be happy with that. Also, Mo Ali has said that he will not be answering any SOSs from Ben Stokes about being a spinner in India. I can already see Tom smiling a little bit with that thought. Um do you think they will be big losses, Dom? Obviously, Stuart Broad, hugely successful for England, second highest ever wicket taker for England, second highest ever seam 
wicket taker overtaking Glenn McGrath. Um, and do you think this will elongate Anderson with with Broad? Um, it's a very difficult question. That I do think Broad is going to be a massive miss. I, I know there was a lot of question marks over him last summer, and I remember there being a sort of debate on sticky wickets. Will Broad have another home ashes? And he was, I believe, England's highest wicket taker. It's going to be quite hard to replace him. He's so consistent physically in the sense he rarely got injured. He was so consistent with the ball, very useful with the bat. And he also was a player that reacted to the big moments and who inspired the crowd. And if you look at the BBC Sport and BBC Cricket's most viewed um, videos of the cricket, Stuart Broad's retirement and the sort of clip of going around of Stuart Broad talking to a little lad, he goes, who's going to get Warner out now? It just shows how much he means. He He's like the most viewed of all of the summer. He's the most viewed uh, cricketer when it comes to on Instagram for the BBC. He just means so much to England fans. And on the pitch is where we'll really feed it because he's experienced. He can bowl. He's physically fit and he's consistent. He's literally everything we, we need. And if we're quite honest, Ollie Robinson is nowhere near that yet. Maturity wise, on and off the pitch. And I am a little bit worried about what the future holds. However... We don't know what could happen. When Graham Thorpe retired in 2004 or five, everyone was very much questioning what's going to happen. And then someone like KP comes along and the world's a better place for it, apparently. Anything can happen. Basball's a very exciting time, but we do need to find someone who can come and consistently be a very good opening bowler for England. I'm not sure the world was necessarily a better place with KP in the side, Dom, but I think <laughs> no, England... I think no, no. I'd actually, I'd actually argue against that. I'd say the world is better for it because if he played for a different nation, I'd have preferred him a lot more. But it's just his nonsense with England and texting and going on and off tours. No, not for me. Not for me. Yeah, I think the big question about this Ashes was probably the first time that they've really managed to publicise the the men's and the women's series together which I think has been such a key reason why it's worked so well this summer obviously the 100 was sort of the big thing a couple of years ago they've managed to continue it through um well do you think that, that that was such a big reason why sort of June and July just was the ashes for me anyway it felt like that was all there was I really liked it as a as both a marketing campaign and as a scheduling um choice I felt that the way that they managed to the way that it, they managed to set it up so that the men's game would finish and then for a lot of people that would just watch the, men, the men's game, suddenly you turn on your TV and the women's the women's game had just started all those women's T20 or it was day five of the women's test or whatever. I felt like that was a really good push because in the same way that we've had the double bills of the hundreds having um, uh, the women's game on before the men's, I think it's brought a lot more publicity to the women's game um, than we'd have necessarily had before. Um, I, I think it was a really canny choice because it created this feeling that there was I think what was the slogan was it like two series one ashes or something like that and it just it did it created a bit like you say Toby it felt like though June and July there was always a bit of ashes cricket going on and I think that really helped already meant we've already mentioned that Stuart Broad and Mo and Ali have announced their retirements in their last ashes series it's also David Warner's last ashes series he's averaged 36 against England in the ashes and 26 in England's well, do you think that it obviously can't be argued that he was a fantastic player, if not a controversial player um, for Australia? But do you think the sort of poor record in England and against England and also India as well, another big team, sort of tarnishes his reputation as a possible Aussie great? I think it's difficult to... It, it, it's obviously it's difficult to argue with his... It, 
it, it's tough. I, I I think the biggest thing, not to it'd be the first thing we'll all jump to, but I think his he's he's come off now and again in England, um, and now and again in the subcontinent. I think the biggest thing to tarnish his reputation was was sandpaper, as much as that's the obvious place to go. I think the the worst bit is with David Warner is whenever I I see an interview with him now, uh, whenever I see his social medias, he doesn't seem like that bad a bloke, and. Um, I think that he's really suffered from having such a dislikable on-field persona. Um, but I, I, do you know, I think it will be a real miss, especially kind of post-2019 when I felt like it really started to take become a thing. Next Ashes series, not to have that broad running into bowl on the first day of the test and David Warner being at the other end. We're going to miss that. And to have the heroes of those rivalries, you need to have the villains as well. And I think David Warner has done a good job of playing that role. So yeah, he'll definitely be missed. But I think his, I think the biggest thing he's done to ruin his reputation was was, was Sandpaper Gate and throwing a and how that all all ended up with Cameron Bancroft being the one seemingly thrown under the bus. I think David yeah. on the pitch was such a he was almost like an alligator. He was like a crocodile. It just felt like he was going to bite you. He just and do you remember when he gets uh, root root tries to smack the ball for six and he gets caught at slip at heading in twenty nineteen and he does that sort of shimmy. And you just think you cannot be more unlikable as a human being. And then you hear about what he does at charity events and what you hear what he's like at hospital. And I won't say the story because it's not my story to tell, but I've heard of people who are going through very tough times in children's hospitals. And he's the one going in there after hours and staying very long times with the kids and talking about chemo and talking about talking to the parents and saying, we'll try and get you tickets. Not going through... Australia going through his own time and he probably is off the pitch a nice bloke but on the pitch he's that typical Australian that is so lovable to hate and I think the Oval to be fair to it was very good at applauding or I, I believe there was a sort of standing ovation for him and like Will says there's got to be heroes like Stuart Broad there's got to be villains like David Warner but I think sometimes with Warner we often forget that he is he's almost a pantomime villain on the pitch and off the pitch I'm sure he's a very likable guy when he's not punching Jerry in Birmingham. <laughs> as well as David Warner, a lot of this Aussie squad is over 30 now. I mean, Stark, Hazelwoods, um, so two of the key bowlers. Smith is very old. Kawaja, similarly 36. There's a, there's a large proportion of the squads who who might not be coming back to England. Well, and it could be their last tour over here. Do you think that they will be remembered as a great Australia team, as good as some of the past? eras or because they've never won in England, they've never won in India, they won't quite be right in that top tier, that top bracket. I think when you've got the likes of the teams that have McGrath and the teams of kind of the late 90s and early 2000s in not necessarily distant memory, it was going to be very difficult for them to cement themselves as kind of a a, a team of a, a great I think they're not a great side. I think they're a side made up of great players, if that makes sense. I don't think people would say, oh, that Australia side, because there's been quite a lot of movement. They haven't had a solid captain throughout uh, the last three. There's been, they've had different captains for the last three Ashes series, I want to say, maybe, uh, in England. So I think it's difficult to call them a great side in the same way that that late 90s Australia side was. But they're, I mean, the likes of Steve Smith in England although he didn't come off in the way I think a lot of people expect him to consistently on this tour. I mean, I don't think anyone can really take away from Steve Smith, for example, the 2019 
turning up at Edgebaston with all the odds against him, having not played a game for a year, rightfully so, and then coming off in the way he did. I think there are some great players in Australia. side, And like you say, we, we talk about Jimmy Anderson, probably his last home ashes, um, depending on what happens. But, you know, who's to, I mean, it's going to be pretty tough for Osman Kwaja to turn up at the age of 40, for Steve Smith to turn up, really, he'll be, he'll be getting on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is the, this Australian side is going to look incredibly different in four years' time. And maybe Pat Cummins will still be there. Um, but the, it's going to be, this going to be a huge shake of it in the Australian test side over the next couple of years. I, I'd just say that this Australian team failing to win in, Eng- uh, in England. I think a lot of great teams, Australian teams, don't come over and win. England is a very difficult place to win. Ricky Ponting never was able to come over and win. So we do need to put that into context. And this Australia team has not lost an Ashes for eight years. That is worth remembering. They've not lost an Ashes, whereas Punter lost two. I think 2-2 is probably the fair result in this one. In 2019, I thought we were outplayed totally. And um, I do I do think 2-2, they should be remembered as a very, very good side. They just come from a nation that produces a lot of great sides. So if this was an England or West Indian or New Zealand team, it'd be one of a generational talent, a golden generation. But unfortunately, Australia just produced so many great teams, they won't be maybe in the top five. Yeah, I think there's some great points. And, and Will, yeah, I think you're right that the change in captaincy is probably going to affect it as well. I think they've had five different captains for the last six Ashes in England, um, sort of going back to to Ponting in 2009, um, which I think really does sum up that the leadership sort of changing sort of every couple of years and they've not been settled in the way they were when Steve Waugh was in charge and then Ponting after that. It basically just sort of followed through. And maybe some of it as well, which I think, it would be hard to argue that the Aussies weren't affected by the talk in the lead up to the, the first testament. And I mean, starting with deep point was was sort of a big statement from Pat Cummins. Do you think, Dom, that they sort of dealt with with this as well as they could have the sort of the aggression and the and the baseball style? I think they were a little taken aback by it overall, and I think they dealt with it well. They haven't lost the series; the urn's still theirs. We do need to remember that. I think they dealt with the aggression really well. I think if they had Nathan Lyon they might have won 3-1. If we're totally honest, it feels a little bit like Glenn McGrath not being there in 2005. It's a big loss for that Australian attack and I don't think we can truly gauge their performance without Nathan Lyon. So I'm going I'm to say they dealt with it relatively well. 2-2, I think is the fair result again and both teams were very, very good. What about you, Will? What, what are your thoughts on this? It's funny, I, I agree with Dom to a, to a sense. I think a lot of the England media and the kind of um, reception to the Ashes has felt like the kind of, I mean, the phrase being we, we drew the Ashes, but we we kind of won the moral victory. Um, I think we do need to remember that obviously as mute as the celebrations were, they Pat Cummins will take the urn back to Australia. Um, but I think that they, I, I don't think they dealt well with it in Edgebast and that was the bit that shocked me the most. Um, I thought the, the, how quick they were to, be so reactionary to the England players. Um, it felt like Crawley would hit a boundary into the covers and then Pat Cummins would put a fielder at deep cover and then he'd pull one for four and Pat Cummins would move that field around. And it just felt like it was really reactionary and there wasn't a lot of being stubborn and saying, no, we back ourselves here to a plan. We're going to keep a line and they're going to keep our slips in. And if they want to hit these shots, they can hit them, but in they're not going to come off every ball. It felt like they 
they were they like Dom says they'd seen a bit of bamboo so they didn't really know how to deal with it but then ultimately they had the quality and they have the the batting that they managed to win two test matches now whether that was winning two test matches because of England's mistakes at Edgebaston in terms of the declaration possibly and then at Lords in terms of swinging at every short ball I, I, I don't know but they ultimately have got the they have retained the ashes um so as kind of revolutionary as a performance of England it was, I think they did manage to deal with it as well as they could have. It was always going to be a bit of a difficult, it's always going to be a difficult style of play to combat, especially when it comes off. I mean, the Ashes is obviously a key part to the English calendar and, and cricket season. However, they next head to um, after Christmas and what, and what will probably be a, a harder test and a harder series to get anything out of. Um, we'll obviously have a lot of build-up over the next six months. Go for a little bit of sort of quick team selection, maybe a prediction. Obviously, injuries and everything might change over the next few months. Um, but I think it'll be interesting maybe to look back on this and, uh, and our sort of thoughts and ideas in, in a few months' time with maybe a bit more clarity about the squad England will be taking and everything. Um, but yeah, let's sort of jump right in with opening partnership. How Have you both of you guys got Crawley and Duckett opening? I see I see no from Will. Dom? Yep, Crawley, Duckett, and the return of Pope at number three following his injury. Oh, Pope at three. Well, do you have Pope there as well? I've got Pope at three as well, purely for the fact of um I think I think I back both Rob Key and Brendan McCullum in backing their players. It's come off with Zach Crawley. And I think give Pope time. And it'd be really great if that by this time next year that England top five could be relatively immovable. This is maybe where then well, this is where first well, my first disagreement with you two has, has come in. I've actually got Stokes in at three. I think he batted very nicely there in that final innings at the Oval. Um, however, I do really like Pope and I can see them picking him. I just think to try and fit Rootbrook, Bairstow in and Stokes, who are your sort of, your big guns, I think, you have to try and manoeuvre around a little bit and I think particularly if Stokes can't bowl or can't bowl sort of full overs and be at, be that third seamer I don't think he can necessarily want Warren to place as that sort of all-rounder in at number six necessarily and I think he could be very very useful in, a, in there at three and I, and I do love Pope and I think he's a great player and, and definitely for the future but I think to try and fit everyone in I've actually dropped him unfortunately I mean, I don't know if any of you guys have any sort of complaints about that. Or, and who do you guys have at four, five, and six then? If you've got Stoke, if you've not got Stokes in the top three, will I come to you first? Um, I've got Root four. I'm keeping Harry Brook at five, and then I've got Stokes at six. Um, and then this is where you're both going to disagree with me: is the is that uh, I've kept Bearstow in at, at keeper um, purely for the fact that I'm approaching it more as what I think they'll go for. Um, I can understand the reasoning for folks, um, but I think that they'll. I think that Bester did enough with the bat, and I, it's funny one with the keeping because there were so many missed chances, but then um, he did take a lot of screams as well. That I think he did just enough to justify his place. But then, like Dom said, they backed folks in Sri Lanka, um, and he has been backed touring abroad with the gloves. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if if. He does come back, but then, like we said, Dom's had to take out Harry Brook to put, fit Ben Folks in, and I don't know if the if the England management will 
be able to will be comfortable making that decision. So yeah, I've gone I've gone Root, Brook, Stokes, and then Besto in the controversial pick. Uh, my middle order is I I do think that um I've gone for Pope at three, Root four, Besto five, six folks, seven Stokes, eight Wokes, and I do count Wokes as part of the middle order. That's a very interesting way of doing it. Wokes, I think, might be an outside bet. They've already sort of been a lot of mentions by Wokes himself as well that he might not travel down there. Um, I I would agree that Folks, I think, has to keep. I don't think England will necessarily, which is a bit of a shame. But I think when you're going down to, to his masterclasses and a lot of the other England sort of ex-England players... You have to have someone behind stumps who not only can take screams, which Bester can take, and folks also definitely can. But you have to have someone who's very tidy, not going to sort of let loads of buys through, which Bester, I think, does. And I think another thing with the buys as well, even though I think Bester is a definite is definitely a better batter than folks, not necessarily a, def- a better sort of keeper batter, but a better batter, because he lets through such a large number of buys, I think you almost need to take that into account to his average, which probably would be higher than folks. And I think he's such a great just batsman that you need him in there without the pressure and the stress of having to keep as well. But I think it's it's a weird, weird one to try and figure in. And we'll obviously we'll talk about it for the next few months as well. Then on to the bowling. Dom, you've already mentioned Wokes. Who have you in then as your other three three options? Someone who I think needs to be part of this future England team and someone who will have the backing of England, uh, Rayan Ahmed. I, I think he's got to step up now. We, we've seen you in Pakistan. Let's see you against an even tougher opponent. Let's see you against India. And then I've got Jack Leach hoping he's back from his injury and the ever-reliable Jimmy Anderson, who I think they will start the series with. Whether he'll be worth it, I don't know. But that is the team I predicted they will go for. I, I just think Anderson might need to be used sparingly, though. We need to protect him at all costs, especially for what should be, in my opinion, his last test summer in England. I agree with Dom about Rian Ahmed and Jack Leach. I think we need two specialist spinners minimum, plus also I think having Joe Root pitch in, if we're going to get pitches like we had in Ahmedabad last year, then not having at least two specialist spinners, not last year, the year before, is going to be an issue. Um, I went for Mark Wood at number eight. I think that having both Jimmy Anderson and Chris, I think having Chris Wokes on the side is great, but I'd like to see Chris Wokes and Jimmy Anderson used as kind of interchangeably between the tests. I think that on pitches that probably won't do much for seeing bowlers, I think it'd be good to have the pace of Mark Wood there. Um, uh, and yeah, that's 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 my team. But then I could, depending on how his World Cup goes, I wouldn't be surprised if. Joffre Archer got a shout in the at least in the squad as well, but it'll be interesting to see. I don't think Joffre Archer will ever play another Test for England. It, it, it's it's not good for his fitness. He can make more money elsewhere. I I love him when he does play for England, but for him with his injuries and his the rest of his career remaining, I wouldn't be surprised if we never see him in a white England shirt again. You made this call a few times. I I can kind of see it. I think. If he is to come back, and especially if he's come back and play tests, having played in this World Cup, India isn't necessarily a bad place for him because seam bowling is far less important and far less strenuous. He'll bowl a few overs 
if you say he'll probably only play one test match, say maybe two, he'll bowl four or five overs with the new ball at the top. Then he'll break for 20 minutes when the spin comes on. Then he'll come back maybe with a slightly older ball for some reverse swing. And then he'll break and then he'll take the new ball again after 80 overs, 90 overs, if and when it, it comes around. So it's not a bad place for him. However, I mean, you called it before, Dom, and, and I think you could be right in the way that he might not play test match cricket for, for England. To you guys, I've also gone for, for Leach and Ahmed as the spinners. I thought Jax is an option and probably will go, but with Joe Root there as an off spinner, I don't think Jax's spin is sort of enough of a quality difference between himself and Root to warrant being the sort of second spinner. But he might be an option maybe with a sort of more all-rounder kind of style um, or as a third spinner um, later on in the series if, if needed. Um, I've I've also gone for, I think there'll be a lot of rotation. I think Wood and Tongue will almost play alternating test matches as that sort of point of difference seamer. And then Jimmy Robinson and, and maybe Matt Potts as just sort of more metronomic, um, trying to keep a low economy um, type of of seamer um, rot and so taking a new ball rather than being sort of a very aggressive wicket-taking option like like Wooden Tongue would be. So I think we've all kind of got a similar enough teams. I think the basis is definitely there. However, we've obviously all got a few different quirks uh, and options within it. So we just can see, I reckon, over the next few few months, maybe how it develops. And we will come back and visit and see maybe how how good our predictions have been. Uh, we also will have a hundred podcast, special podcast, out some point in the next week or so. Um, sort of reviewing uh, what's happened so far, predictions for the next and final sort of week or so of the, of the tournament. And obviously the final coming up at the end of August, we'll have a special pod uh, around that as well, discussing the winners. And obviously there will be a lot of debate between myself and Dom and obviously the rest of the pundits uh, on Sticky Wicket, which I think could be could be key. Dom, question, have you watched any of the hundreds this year? Yeah, I watched a little bit of um uh the the popcorn team versus or oh, what were they i think the hula hoops um and that's Phoenix welsh fire for uh for translation yeah <laughs> no i think people will be i think it's easier to identify maybe it's just because i'm obsessed with food i it was what it yeah i i i'm not gonna swear for my own editing i'm not gonna swear for my own editing Thank you and good night. Yeah, that is, as Dom says there, all we have time for on this podcast. A, a very, very long one at that. Uh, quickly, a shout out to to Rob, who I didn't shout out in a previous podcast, uh, talking about the Lord Test match, where he was there alongside myself, Holly, and my dad, who also was complaining about a shout out. But I won't give him an official one, just, just to spice him. Dom, shout can out have, from you. Can we have a shout out for the risotto Will Griffin has been delaying for an hour and a half? Mate, go... Go put that rice on. Go sizzle those onions, mate. Get get a little parmesan in there. Go, mate. It's Go. like a test. It's, it's it's not my basball is not no my risotto is not basball. It's slow. It's it's more of an Alistair Cook than a Harry Brook. But it will be. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. We won't keep you long now, Will. So thank you all for for listening to this monumental podcast. Probably our longest one at least for for a couple of years. Um. So thank you all for listening. Make sure you follow us on Instagram, StickyWicket underscore URN. And to keep updated with with all the changes to, to Sticky Wicket that, that may or may not be coming. Who knows? We'll see what happens. Um, and yeah, so go well and cheers.